Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars, artists, and librarians about books, research, and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm delighted to have on the program today the art historian Dora Appel. Dora is the W. Hawkins Ferry Professor Emerita in Modern and Contemporary Art History at Wayne State University in Detroit. Her many influential books include Imagery of Lynching, Black Men, White Women, and the Mob, Memory Effects, The Holocaust, and the Art of Secondary Witnessing, and Beautiful, Terrible Ruins, Detroit and the Anxiety of Decline. She's also published numerous articles in journals, including the Jacobin, Brooklyn Rail, the Art Bulletin, Art Journal, Oxford Art Journal, New German Critique, American Quarterly, Descent, and the Journal of Visual Culture, and many more. She is the editor or co-editor of 10 exhibition catalogs for the Cranbrook Art Museum. In 2017, she was elected a lifetime member of the WSU Academy of Scholars. And she's here to talk with us today about her most recent book, Calling Memory Into Place, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020. Hello, Dora, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You're an art historian, and this book is, in some respects, an historical monograph investigating the phenomenon of the monument. But the book is a bit more complicated in that it can also be read as a personal memoir and a family history. So I wonder, can you talk about your intentions for the book in terms of genre and also the audience that you had in mind for it? The book is a, a hybrid structure that looks at monuments and images, but also memoir and family history, because I'm interested in how individual and cultural consciousness reflect and construct each other. So the book therefore shifts between different voices or different ways of knowing, the scholarly, the personal, and the visual. I also wanted to explore issues such as trauma, memory, and place, and make visible histories that have been repressed or marginalized. So I'm interested in different ways of knowing, and I, I think that we experience cultural monuments and places based both on what we know about them historically, but also how we respond to them physically in terms of an embodied response. And the body itself can be experienced in ways that are shaped by culture and politics. So in terms of audience, I think the audience for this book are people who are interested in the way that our memory landscape and cultural sites construct our consciousness, both as individuals and collectively. Mm -hmm. People who are interested in seeing marginalized voices brought to the center. And I think the book is also for people who are interested in the way we tell our own stories and how we bring our own experience to the memory landscape and how we are changed by that. So good citizens, the audience, I imagine, and also people interested in culture generally and how those two intersect. Yeah. Uh, all your books seem to be about that. And, you know, I often say that the best scholarship, while you're reading it, tells you something about the scholar, that you sense a growth or an excitement about their subject matter that's personal to them. 
and that really informs the way you re read the, the scholarship. And it can be a very exciting thing. And I, I find that in spades in this book, of course. Of course, it is a memoir to some extent, but it seems to me a, a very personal importance in the whole project here. I think that, you know, when we start out as young scholars, we want to impress our colleagues and speak in as authoritative and objective a voice as we can. And over time, as we get older, <laughs> we, we, we realize that all of that is informed by who we are as people and by our subjective experience. And that making that plain, making that visible actually makes the work more uh, powerful mm -hmm. and, and that people want to know that. So I was a little nervous with this book in adding those personal chapters because I didn't know how people would respond. And I've been greatly encouraged to find that these are the chapters a lot of people like the best. Wonderful. You know, I'm at an undergraduate institution and I often say undergraduate teaching is about developing that personal individual. Yeah, so it's a very yeah. exciting, exciting book. I can see why you got that response. So you start out your book in your introduction with a piece by an artist we've recently had on the show, actually, our mutual friend, Buzz Spector. The piece is entitled Bibliography Memory Effects, and you use it as a kind of platform to launch your readers into the rest of your book. So my question, I suppose, is does Buzz's work throw light on your subject matter or on your approach to memory in general? Yeah, I would say both. I think Buzz Spector's work often deals with what is remembered as well as with silences and mm. occlusions and with trying to express the inexpressible. The photograph I use that you mentioned is a large Polaroid diptych of all the books I used to write my first book, mm. which was Memory Effects, The Holocaust and the Art of Secondary Witnessing. And so Buzz piles up the books in a way that make visible certain titles, but turns most of the titles away from the viewer. So this becomes, I think, a perfect example of how knowledge and memory is obscured and forgotten and how what we do remember shapes our understanding of the past. So this makes it a, um, a very apt work for my study, which focuses on what has been unremembered, marginalized, and repressed. Mm -hmm. Wonderful piece. And Buzz is all about forgetting as well as about memory and the relationship between the two. Also useful for setting up the book and what you have to say in the book is your brief essay at the beginning on the monument of Walter Benjamin installed in the early 1990s by the artist Donny Caravan on the shoreline of Porbu, Spain. And it's actually the cover illustration on the jacket of your book. Does that also then tell us about memorial works and our expectations of them and your project here? Yeah, Donny Caravan's monument to Walter Benjamin primarily consists of a steel portal carved through the rock to the sea. It has a long flight of stairs and a thick pane of glass about two thirds of the way down with a quote from Benjamin about memory etched into it. And then beyond the glass, you see the water thrashing on the rocks, and you can even see your own shadow on the water. So it's surprisingly haunting mm -hmm. and even frightening. And this makes it very different from traditional monuments, which were meant to provide historical closure and to evoke a lasting consensus about historical meaning. 
but there have been a lot of debates around such monuments. Um, if you think of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial or the 9-11 Memorial in New York City, and these debates raise important questions. What memory is being preserved mm -hmm. for what audience and what memory is being left out? So in the 19th century, monuments mostly consisted of heroic figures performing a symbolically noble or triumphant mm -hmm. acts. And therefore, slavery, for example, was represented through the figure of Abraham Lincoln mm -hmm. rather than through the figures of Black people. After the atrocities of World War II, though, monuments gradually departed from that heroic and redemptive mode. They became more abstract and more concerned with grief and loss and mourning. And this is what Donnie Carvon's monument does. It remains open-ended and it resists historical closure. And that also is important for my larger thesis that memory is dynamic and changes over the course of generations and under different historical circumstances. It's a beautiful image for your book and that it leaves you standing there sort of gazing through a portal at the thing we have to think about, which is the way we remember things. I don't know if your book frames the monument or the monument frames the book. Anyway, very effective, I thought. Your chapters read a bit like related essays in the book, and your chapter, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, and the following chapter, Memorials and Museums, both focus upon the issue of racial violence in the United States. The former with contemporary events in the media predating George Floyd, but quite presciently predicting that very public lynching. And Memorials and Museums has to do with the historical memory of lynching in the United States and the cultural erasure of that history. These are very timely essays, aren't they? And comprise a very important part of your book. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the theme of racism and how it intersects with anti-Semitism and sexism, um, that really permeates all the chapters, I think. But the summary execution of Black people by police in this country, I think, is a far more common occurrence than people in America actually realize. There are about a thousand deaths per year of Black men and women killed by police. In fact, we heard in the news quite recently that medical examiners often assign the cause of death yeah. of Black people killed by police to natural causes. Mm -hmm. So yes, we can consider all these killings legal lynchings. Mm -hmm. But you know, until 1950, between 1877 and 1950, there were roughly 5,000 lynchings in this country, and they have never been publicly commemorated mm -hmm. until now. So these are people who are lynched for being disrespectful, bumping into a white woman while catching a train, for standing around, for bothering a white person, for voting, for organizing sharecroppers, reporting a crime, asking for their wages, and so on. So the Equal Justice Initiative, led by Brian Stevenson, spent six years documenting these lynchings and founding the nation's first lynching memorial which is the Memorial to Peace and Justice, and an accompanying museum called the Legacy Museum. 
And these opened in Montgomery, Alabama in 2018 in the midst of a resurgence of white supremacy mm-hmm. under the Trump administration. Yeah. So not surprisingly, the memorial and the museum became subjects of controversy because these institutions refuse to repress the history of lynching and they link it to the history of slavery, mm-hmm. of segregation and mass incarceration. So they become forms of activist memory, what I would call activist memory, that not only remembers what has been forgotten, but endows it with political meaning and becomes a counter narrative to the values of white supremacy and the rising tide of hate crimes. Do you think, because the lynching memorial was there when you did this book, but then the George Floyd event happened afterwards, and then there were the great, really wonderful, I thought, expressions of anger, public demonstrations that followed that. Do you think the lynching memorial served a purpose in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, contributed to that? Do you think the popular feeling, as intense as it was, did that have anything to do with the memorial, or is it just the time, do you think? I don't know. It's difficult to say. There were protests and rallies in downtown Montgomery in front of the state capitol after George Floyd's murder. And the statue of Robert E. Lee that stood in front of the Robert E. Lee High School just a few miles away was pulled down. But I think it's safe to say that the presence of the lynching memorial and the Legacy Museum helped embolden young Black people and others to protest in the wake of Floyd's murder. Because the memorial and the museum remember and acknowledge a history of racial violence that has never been remembered, publicly remembered, and acknowledged in this way before. On the contrary, it's been a history subject to denial and forgetting that many still want to deny. So I think having that memorial there as an important part of the cultural landscape allows the voices or emboldens the voices of the oppressed you know, to raise their voices, to be heard. And it also allows for collective mourning and grieving mm-hmm. and for truth-telling. Mm-hmm. I think there are other memorials that we can see that do something similar. In the last couple of years, there have been COVID memorials uh-huh. that have been created. And I think they're important in this way too, because if you recall in the first year of the pandemic, Trump downplayed Mm -hmm. the effects of the virus and repressed the science in an attempt to insist on silence and forgetting. But people don't want to forget. So these temporary COVID Mm -hmm. street memorials were created. And that includes in Detroit on Belle Isle, which is now a state park, 900 large portraits of people who died in the pandemic were set up and 15 funeral processions drove Mm -hmm. by them. Yeah, it's a wonderful testament to the fact that art still has power, social and political power, and history also, yes, the importance of both history and art in the way our future unfolds before us, you know, if we're willing to remember the past. Yes, absolutely. And then you also talk about photography a lot in the book, and it's serving as a kind of vehicle of consciousness and memory for creating histories or remembering what happens as an art form and as a monumental form. So we're talking about a monument here, but it's not a man on a horse. It's a photograph. It's, you know, it's a different kind of art, but you don't need sculpture to have a monument, do you? No, right. I mean, photography, especially documentary or journalistic photography and 
and video, they make visible what otherwise remain invisible. And when you leave things invisible, that serves the forces of domination. So photography creates a public sphere to which everyone has access and in which everyone can be a participant. So it's broadly democratic. Mm-hmm. And it therefore allows for grievances and claims to achieve a broad public consensus in favor of the oppressed. I also think images are often much more powerful than text. So the photographic image is crucial to emancipatory social struggle. Mm -hmm. And the George Floyd video is a very good example of this. Mm One of the well-known images of the Ferguson protests when Michael Brown was murdered there is a Black protester holding up his hands and facing a line of militarized police who are aiming their weapons at this unarmed protester and graffiti on a mailbox that says, F the police. So it aptly encapsulates the approach of the state toward Mm -hmm. Blackness and the popular response. Uh And in that case, not the response of merely a victim, where you're learning that this is the way things are. The second chapter there, Memorials and Museums, interesting because you're in the same place. You're in Montgomery, Alabama. So you have the uh, Memorial to Peace and Justice, the Mm -hmm. basically lynching memorial, and also the Confederate White House uh, and all these Confederate symbols all over the towns. So the question is, what about Confederate monuments here uh, and this conflict of works of art? This isn't simply about replacing one person's history with another, is it? No, definitely not. But Confederate monuments across the South were created in the 1910s during the women's suffrage movement, uh, which coincided with the election of Blacks to public office. And they were also erected in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. So in both cases, they were intended to intimidate Black people politically and to reassert white supremacy by unilaterally claiming the public sphere. They were also meant to obscure the history of racial violence and white supremacist suppression of Black civil rights. Mm. So... I think Confederate monuments today can be treated in a number of ways. They can simply be removed or they can be recontextualized or repurposed, but they have to be mediated in some way to make room for Black experience in the larger history of American life. You move nicely in your chapter on racism aimed at African-Americans to racism full stop and Rachel White reads quite amazing Holocaust Memorial in Vienna. And I wonder if you can talk about the connection between American racism and uh, Nazism and about also White Reed's Memorial there, which is a library of a kind. Well, uh, I think it's important for us to realize that Hitler was very inspired by America and the enslavement of African-Americans. He was also encouraged by the doctrine of manifest destiny and the mass murder of Native Americans, Mm -hmm. which has been compared to the doctrine of Lebensraum. And he was influenced by the racist ideas of Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh, by the American eugenics movement, and especially by American race laws. American eugenicists were openly racist, and California's sterilization program directly inspired the Nazi sterilization law of 1934. Uh, I think it's interesting that recently 
an American doctor was found to be performing unnecessary hysterectomies on migrant women mm -hmm. in detention centers. I was appalled and amazed. You know, yes, uh, horrifying. How, how could you not be? Yeah, past repeating itself too. Yep. And Hitler also praised American restrictions on immigration following the American Immigration Act of 1924, which prevented thousands of Jews from escaping to America during the Holocaust. But regarding the Vienna Memorial by Rachel Whiteread, I think there are generally two kinds of memorials when it comes to evoking and remembering the victims of mass atrocity. The 9-11 Memorial, for example, lists all the names of those who died in the Twin Towers and seeks to remember every individual. Mm -hmm. But other memorials like Whiteread's Holocaust Memorial in Vienna and Eisenman's Berlin Holocaust Memorial, they remember loss with loss, in the words of James Young. Mm. Instead of naming the 65,000 Austrian Jews who were killed by the Nazis, an archive that does not, in fact, exist because they didn't keep that record, White Reed creates a cast inverted library. So the doors have no handles or hinges, and the spines of the books are all turned inward away from the viewer. And this produces an unknown and an unknowable archive of knowledge and experience that has been lost, which I think is very profound and moving. It evokes a sense of a whole lost future. Representing the unrepresentable in a sense. And then you end this chapter with a look at Nick Cave's sculpture, TM13. Very interesting piece. All his work is. Yes. Well, the TM stands for Trayvon Martin. And Nick Cave's sculpture was inspired by the killing of Trayvon Martin by the neighborhood vigilante, George Zimmerman. Zimmerman thought the 17-year-old Black youth in a hoodie looked suspicious and killed him for that reason. And he was then acquitted of the murder. So the sculpture takes the form of a figure wearing a hoodie surrounded by the symbols of childhood, like a Santa Claus and a teddy bear. Mm. But it's all wrapped in a beaded net that suggests the constraints of being Black, if not the caging of Blackness itself. So also a moving work. Yeah, it is. So before Michael Brown and George Floyd, there was Emmett Till, and we have in the art world witnessed the controversy that was ignited when the British artist Hannah Black launched a campaign against Dana Schutz's referencing the photograph of Till that his mother used so effectively decades before. But you seem as appalled as I am at this kind of a claim to cultural ownership or claim to owning a cultural message. You know, for one, to me, it seems to me racist and essentialist itself. And two, it moves the struggle from where it should be, a collective struggle against racism, to a struggle over who has the right to the claim of offense and victimization. So can you talk about this in the context of your thinking about memory and social healing? Yeah, it was a big controversy and it raised the issue of cultural appropriation because Dana Schutz, a white artist, based her painting on the well-known photo of Emmett Till at his funeral. And those who wanted Dana Schutz's painting destroyed argued that she had no right to address Black oppression and injustice. So I agree with you. This argument is not only based on racial essentialism, but is also a form of cultural policing. 
that has only ever played a repressive role in history, including the Nazi destruction of modern artwork, the, the blowing up of the Bamiyan Buddhas and other destructive acts by right-wing regimes. But it also ignores a history of interracial struggle for Black rights and a history mm -hmm. of anti-racist art by non-Black artists. So this is a deeply flawed argument that ignores our ability to have political agency, to transcend our own subject positions and empathize with those whose experience may be very different from our own. Yes, I don't know what Hannah Black's educational background is, but she could have used a few years at Vassar here or Wayne State to help correct her sense of the claims of art and history. <laughs> also, you bring into this discussion Sally Mann's uncanny photograph that's entitled Deep South, which functions itself as a kind of memorial art. And, you know, we spoke briefly about photography being able to evoke memory in, in important ways. And can you just mention that, especially in this context? Sally Mann, interestingly, named her son Emmett uh -huh. after Emmett Till, and she went to the site on the Tallahatchie River where Emmett Till's body was found and produced a very eerie and haunting photograph of the riverbank and the river as a way of evoking and honoring the memory of Emmett Till. I think because imagery is capable of producing a collective emotional experience, it contributes to creating a collective sense of history and a progressive politics of memory. So uh, Sally Mann, like I myself, we're both white women who are implicated in this argument and both committed to the struggle against racial oppression. And it helps us see that Emmett Till was not just a part of Black history, that Black history is not separate from American history. History, yes. Right? We yeah, are all yeah. affected by this history. Apart from Sally Mann here, you really quite wonderfully bring other works into your arguments, into the essays that form this book, and other photographers also. And one of these photographers is Diana Matar and her photography of her experiences in North Africa. And I thought those were wonderful too, as with Sally Mann. She's a wonderful artist, very moving material that she works with there. Yes. Diana Matar is a photographer whose father-in-law was an opposition leader that was disappeared by the Gaddafi regime in Libya. Mm -hmm. So Matar traveled to Libya after Gaddafi's death and tried to capture a sense of place that conveyed the terror and repression of the political regime, as well as the traumatic impact it had on her. For example, she photographed an empty chair kept for 20 years by the wife of a man who never came to sit in it again, or a foreboding image of a prison taken at night. Matar felt that everything and anything in the environment could absorb the memory of events and act as a witness to those events. Mm -hmm. And so her photos evoke that sense of displacement and disappearance and loss. Very interesting, because this is an intergenerational trauma, in a sense. You can see it working here. And it does have to do with place in some way. So what's happening here is 
it's it's hard for the mind to comprehend, but it's really important, isn't it? And it's something art does have access to. Art can remind us that place holds memory, I suppose you could say, it seems to me. Yes, yeah. exactly. So in this chapter, seeing what can no longer be seen, you talk about place as palimpsest, on which are written vestiges of past histories that can no longer be readily discerned. I suppose that's what we're talking about here. So can you talk about your own travels into your own family's history? So I went back to the small town in Poland where my parents grew up and lived before the Nazi onslaught forced them to flee to the Soviet Union. I wanted to be where they were, Mm -hmm. where they had been, to see what they had seen, even though I knew we can never return to the past. But I also felt, like Diana Matar, that the environment absorbs the memory of events. Mm -hmm. And in this case, even though most of the evidence of Jewish life was gone, um, it it could still be evoked. So we went back to the old Jewish cemetery where my grandparents were probably murdered in a mass grave by the river there. And this was very moving for me. I also went to Auschwitz and Birkenau where several relatives of mine had been imprisoned. And as I stood on the train platform at Birkenau, I thought about a story my cousin had told me when I was four years old. She described how she arrived with her mother at the very spot on which I was standing Mm -hmm. and how Mengele had sent people to the barracks or to their death with the turn of his thumb, right or left. So this also, of course, was very moving for me. And I realized that being in a place is a truly embodied experience. It's nostalgic, it's uncanny, it affects your sense of time. It connects you to events that occurred in the past before you were born. Mm -hmm. And it connects you to the subjectivities of others. And by connecting you to the subjectivity of others, it changes your sense of yourself. Absolutely fascinating, the insights you have through your own personal experience here. It's what makes your book so powerful, actually. I think phenomenologists also talk about this. Well, yeah, place, certainly. It's really important in Heidegger, for sure. So this chapter opens up, for me, questions about the nature of history itself, and it's offering the possibility of cultural healing as a kind of civic therapy. Art historians will tell you that art historians are historians, full stop. So I wonder, can you talk about how you conceive of your role as an historian? I'm thinking here, oddly, of Dr. Zhivago and a doctor for Pasternak, who was the only really revolutionary in that book. So do you think of yourself as an historian and then as an historian, as a kind of physician or healer at all? Maybe that's too much of a question, um, Um, unanswerable. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to say yes, but I'm not so sure. I think of myself more as a cultural critic, but if I think of myself as a historian, I think my job is not just to uncover a repressed or marginalized past, but to mobilize the traumatic past Mm -hmm. for social justice in the present and the future. So my interest in the past is always motivated by the way it affects us in the present. Mm -hmm. So excavating and reinterpreting the past, it also becomes a way of advocating for the dynamic nature of memory, which 
changes with new generations and with different historical circumstances. And in that way, it's constantly shaping and reshaping both an understanding of ourselves and of collective society. So maybe history serves as a kind of social psychotherapy. It can, I suppose. But it has to be political therapy too, because yeah, yeah. I right, want it to be an activist form of memory that actually leads to struggle for social change. Mm -hmm. You have another chapter which features another wonderful work of art, and that is uh, Yale Bartana's installation, A Declaration of 2006. And I wonder if you can talk about that work. This is a move to Palestine, right? Yeah. Yael Bartana is an Israeli artist who produced a declaration as a performance video mm -hmm. in which a man rows out to Andromeda Rock carefully removes and rolls up the Israeli flag and replaces it with an olive tree. And the olive tree is a symbol of Palestinian identity and Palestinian claims to the land. The olive tree also alludes to the fact that the state of Israel has destroyed almost a million olive trees while reappropriating Palestinian land. And Andromeda Rock is also the site of myth. This is where Perseus rescued Andromeda, who was placed there by a vengeful Poseidon as a sacrifice in response to the sin of pride committed by Andromeda's mother. In Bartana's work, I would argue that the sins of pride and vengeance appear to be represented by the pride and vengeful claims of the Israeli state mm -hmm. in the form of the flag. And by replacing that flag with an olive tree, it not only acknowledges the claims of the Palestinian people, but also conjures the olive tree as a symbol of peace. Uh -huh. So he was able to at least record this on video, yes? So, and that's the work of art, because I'm sure the Israelis came right away and put their flag back, yes? So. <laughs> she, it's a she. she, she yeah. So she uh, put their flag back and probably destroyed the olive tree. Uh, in the yes. Process, yeah. So then, you know, moving on, what did your visit to Israel add to your understanding of trauma and memory, and especially perhaps that of your own family's trauma and the Holocaust? The issues of trauma and memory are complex. And uh, I have relatives living in Israel who mm -hmm. I love, who I don't agree with politically. But I also felt a deep connection to my Jewish ancestors in Israel at mm -hmm. the Western Wall in Jerusalem. But I was very dismayed by the treatment of Palestinians. I stayed in a Palestinian-owned hotel in a Palestinian part of Jerusalem. So I defend the rights of the Palestinian people and refuse to endorse Zionist nationalism. And I think one of the problems with Zionist ideology is that it equates the Nazi persecution of the Jews with Palestinian resistance to the depredations of the Israeli state. But the Palestinians had nothing to do with Nazi persecution of the Jews, and they are now being persecuted themselves and treated as a pariah minority in the same way that the Jews once were. Mm -hmm. So Israel is a country full of contradictions. On the one hand, it's the home of what were once socialist kibbutzim mm -hmm. and socialist-minded kibbutzniks, whose sons now serve in elite Israeli army units. 
And it's a place where Palestinians who've been living in their homes for 50 years or longer are being evicted Mm -hmm. so that Jewish settlers can move in. In other words, it's a place where one set of people is persecuted and dispossessed by another set of people who were once persecuted and dispossessed. Mm. And in in this way, Israel is the embodiment of an ongoing struggle over place and memory and identity. And of course, it troubles me greatly that the horror of the Holocaust is used as an excuse to persecute Palestinians. You got caught up yourself at a conference there, didn't you, in in an ongoing conflict that was in the news everywhere at the time, the displacement of a group of Palestinians from their homes in Jerusalem. It was a neighborhood known as Sheikh Jarrah, Uh and um, three uh, Palestinian families comprising about 50 people were thrown out of their homes, and they had all been there and had documents proving their ownership from the Jordanian government. And so they set up camp on the sidewalk across from their former homes while Jewish settlers moved in. And there were a lot of protests. And so I went there and I sat with them and talked to the the heads of the families. And I promised one of them that I would write about this, Uh, which I do mm -hmm. in calling memory into place. It's a powerful part of the book, actually, and it fills it out, which makes the question of memory and trauma and political oppression and racism a wider thing than just what we have in the United States here. And it's actual living history here. Yes, and, and it's still ongoing. Certain very important aspects of human experience don't often find their own memorials, especially for women's experiences. And I spoke to a colleague of yours a few weeks ago, Suzanne Preston-Blier, on the program about Picasso's great masterpiece, uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, famously identified as a painting about sex and menace by Leo Steinberg. But that painting, according to Blier, is also very much about the heroic act of giving birth and of the fruition of humanity in all of its forms from the bodies of women as a kind of sacred passageway of being. So you do have a chapter in the book that focuses on works of art that also memorialize the birth process. And I wonder if you could mention that. I wanted to consider works that memorialize the birth process, including one by Annette Messager and one by... Carmen Winant that was at MoMA in 2018 called My Birth, because giving birth is a fundamental aspect of human experience, yet it is so little talked about. And I think that's precisely because it's an experience confined to women. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to talk about my mother's experience of giving birth in a German hospital immediately after World War II. As my mother was being put to sleep under ether, she heard the nurse say to the doctor, you know, she's a Jew. And I heard this story when I was five years old and I had just been in the hospital myself to get my tonsils out and had been given ether too. So I could imagine my mother's experience of losing consciousness and hearing those words and not knowing if she would ever wake up again which of course had a very traumatic impact on me. And I think I tried to compensate for my mother's traumatic experience when I gave birth to my daughter 40 years later by taking control of the birth experience, interviewing doctors, refusing all drugs, Uh 
And so I'm interested in the way that we inherit and internalize the traumas of our parents, but also the ways in which we can productively mobilize that inheritance. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, wonderful. So this leads in then to your final chapters, which focus on your encounter with the medical industrial complex that are generally and your own struggle with cancer. And this, I think, was about a kind of heroism. And this part of the book says so much to me about direct experience, research, and realms of knowledge in general that go beyond the concept of disease. The academy comes out very well here in that you finally run into a doctor who isn't, you know, who does strike you as a fellow academic that you can talk to that understands your looking out beyond holopathic medicine to other forms of healing. So can you talk about that a while? And then you also hear, of course, use photographs and the self-documentation of Hannah Wilkie, which is a wonderful series, who died of cancer and documented the process. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could talk about that a bit. So this is very personal experience, but a very personal history, but it does have wider implications for everybody who ever walks through a hospital door and has to get treatment and wonder what's going to happen to them. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, my experience with breast cancer definitely changed me and made me see that embodied subjective experience can never really be separated from our scholarly or intellectual pursuits. And this was another case where I used my mother's stamina and determination in the face of disease and starvation in the Soviet Union to help get me through a traumatic experience. So I I began to mistrust the one-size-fits-all protocols of the Mm -hmm. hospital, and I learned to advocate for myself and exert my agency against the authority of the doctor's So I began to do my own research and read articles in online medical journals about the treatments for the kind of breast cancer that I had. And then I began to intervene in every aspect of my treatment. So I not only got better treatment this way, but I felt empowered instead of at the mercy of what seemed like a patriarchal capitalist system whose own interests were not necessarily the same as my best interests. And then I realized that I could only do this because I had a certain level of privilege as an academic who could do this kind of research. And as a white person, it made me think about the ways in which black people receive worse medical treatment and have historically been the subjects of terrible medical experiments. So I wrote about it because I think it's important to tell our stories so we we know who we are, so that we know what we feel and think and why we feel and think that way, and hopefully to help others who might go through similar experiences. But I I introduce uh, that chapter with my chapter on Hannah Wilkie, as you mentioned, because I think the self-portraits that Hannah Wilkie took as she was dying of lymphoma in the hospital represent a supremely heroic act. It was a way for her also to empower herself and to take charge of her own story and to love herself until the end. So I I wanted to use that as a kind of introduction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it works to add to your own experience here, for sure. So to summarize a bit, is the notion of the public memorial changing and should we be considering new roles for monuments? So I think the notion of the public memorial continues to change and is dictated by the needs and pressures of the historical moment. 
one example of a kind of memorial that I think has only become prevalent in the last 20 or 30 years is the roadside memorial or the street memorial. And these spring up spontaneously as a form of protest and mourning when older rituals seem insufficient. I've mentioned the COVID street memorials and street memorials have also been produced every year in Ferguson, Missouri on the anniversary of Michael Brown's death and also the site where George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis was turned into a street memorial and is now known as George Floyd Square. And this includes a mural of George Floyd. So such memorials become places for collective grief and mourning, but I think they're also more than that. Unlike traditional memorials, they're not meant to provide closure, but on the contrary, to prevent closure and to become sites of resistance against the still continuing murders of the racist murders of black people. I don't know if people realize that they're creating art when they create these memorials, but they do us all a service in this. And it comes right from the heart also, doesn't it? So these memorials almost spring up the way roadside memorials for traffic victims do. Right. So I can't imagine you're not working on another project now. So if you are, can you tell me what your next book project might be? I am working on another project. <laughs> How did uh, I guess? <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's a book that I'm calling Sheltering in Place. And it's my most personal work yet. Uh, it's kind of a two-track memoir. One track focuses on themes of identity and gender and trauma, issues of desire and motherhood and writing. And this is framed and punctuated with ongoing pandemic notes and reflections on the first 18 months of the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm still interested in how remembering the past from the vantage point of the present changes us. And also in exploring the anxieties and desires and epiphanies of the ongoing cultural trauma of COVID. And I think the book reflects the many modes by which we learn to endure and survive. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So hopefully we can talk about it on the show when you're finished. And also, I'm really keen to talk about your book, Beautiful, Terrible Ruins, Detroit and the Anxiety of Decline, since I'm a Detroiter myself, and you've made city your home for some time. And there's a lot to talk about there. What's happened to Detroit over recent years is emblematic of what's happening in a lot of places. I'd really like to thank you, Dora, for visiting with us in the Library Cafe today to talk about Calling Memory into Place, published by Rutgers last year. Really appreciate your coming and uh, taking the time to do the interview. Oh, well, thank you so much to you.